How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 213 of X-Lapsed, where this is our June finale. This is the last book in our X-Lapsed short box until the uh, the next shipment arrives, probably in the next, I don't know, week, week and a half or so. But uh, this is going to do it for original recipe X-Lapsed for at least a little while. Now, we are, of course, still at the Hellfire Gala, where we will be for, uh, well, the next... Many, many episodes So uh, let's get into it At least it's Hellions Day That's always a good thing, isn't it? It is Hellions number 12 This had an August 2021 cover date The story's called Gate Crashing Written by Zeb Wells with art by Steven Segovia Colors by David Curiel Letters VC's Ariana Marr Designs Tom Muller, Head of X's Hickman Edits Amaro Basso, White Sabolski Cover price 4 bucks. This one went on sale June 2nd of 2021 Now we open with our Hellion VIPs preparing to attend the Hellfire Gala. Now, uh, only Mr. Sinister, Quanon, and Havoc seem to have been invited, and the rest of the Irregulars just sit there and watch. Now, it's worth noting, they don't look all that bummed out, or, or like pouty, about not getting invites, and, uh, you know, uh, they're probably right to feel that way. <laughs> they don't seem to really care that they're not invited, it's just kind of a thing that is. Havoc then pops in, and he's wearing a uh, ridiculous Asian-inspired costume. Uh, It's a riff on his, you know, normal power circles, like we've seen in a lot of his costumes, but uh, with a kimono of sorts. He asks the crew how he looks. Nanny suggests that he looks like a boy who needs attention, which, yeah, kinda. Uh, Grey Crow follows up, stating that he looks like a boy who might be angry at his father, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I chuckled at both. And now I'm starting to wonder if maybe Corsair and the Jammers will show up. Eh, you never know. Orphan Maker thinks out loud, and he mentions that, uh, you know what, a gala sounds like fun. You know, it might be fun to do this thing. Havoc responds, commenting on how many parents Orphan Maker has killed, and how that might make him a bit of a bummer at this global soiree. Quanon enters the scene and urges the Irregulars to continue their training while they're off partying and hobnobbing. And Quinan is wearing a dress with a neckline that plunges below her belly button, like well below her belly button, and uh, is adorned with pink flowers of the perhaps psychic variety. And yeah, I mean, this really is a low plunging uh, outfit here. She might actually be able to give birth through the gap if she needed to. So I wonder if we can let Jim Lee off the hook now for his Nympho Ninja costume just yet. Uh, Now, whatever the case... Grey Crow really seems to like what he sees, basically because he can see most of it. From here, our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, our characters are what they always are. It's Havoc, Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wildchild, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, and Mr. Sinister. 
Now, Sinister, Alex, and Quanon leave the Irregulars behind to head to the gala. Wildchild, Norf, and Maker have a wrestling match, uh, while Empath and Nanny look on. Grey Crow downs a bottle of some sort of booze before declaring that, you know what, screw it, invites or no, they're gonna go to the gala. And so, off to the gala, they and we go. Once there, we see Mr. Sinister chatting up Captain America and Iron Man. And in a wonderfully cute bit, he asks them which one is which. He's like, I know I'm talking to Captain America and Iron Man, but which one is which? Uh, he, he claims to not own a television, and so he's, he's not sure. Betsy and Quanon have an awkward bumping into. Um, you know, I think, but I can't be sure, but these two might have a history. Maybe? I don't know. Uh, Havoc is also being awkward. Uh, he's appealing to the uh, slot machine vomit victim, Professor X, to see about getting Madeline Pryor resurrected. And he kind of gets brushed off. Xavier tells him he ought to hang out with his friends, the uh, party-crashing Hellions. You know, leave me alone. Go be with your people. Which, I mean, wonderfully classist on this mutant island. Then, we've got Nightcrawler. At least I think it's Nightcrawler. I'm, I'm sure it's Nightcrawler. It's just not a good take on him visually. He rushes over to the Hellions to drunkenly tell them that they've been on his mind a lot of late. And while in fairness, he did provide the mostly blank quote pages for the first ten or so issues of the series, right? From here, we shift back to Mr. Sinister, who's now schmoozing with Thor and Black Panther, and he's sharing some trademark sassy banter with them. It's all very fun. Then Nanny wobbles up, which once again freaks the hell out of Sinister. This never, ever fails to get me. It's just like Sinister with like one leg up going like, ah! It's very, very funny. And it's, it's like low-hanging fruit here, but it gets me every single time. Nanny then fills T'Challa and Thor in on how Sinister is an abductor, an abuser, and a murderer of children. Sinister frantically tries to do a little bit of damage control here by asserting that, uh, you know, that was a different version of Sinister that did all the nasty stuff. That was a bad one, not me. Don't worry about it. I'm a good guy. But by now, his chatter pals have excused themselves to go mingle with other partygoers, so uh, the conversation has been ruined. We jump over to the bar where Grey Crow joins Quinnon for a drink. Then, Quentin Quire wanders over to bounce John and the rest of the Irregulars out of the party. Quinnon says that the entire team of the Hellions are her plus one. Quentin kind of balks at this uh, before Quinnon threatens to tell Phoebe Cuckoo what QQ really thinks of her dress. I'm not sure why this would be an insult to Phoebe necessarily. I mean, these awful designs are all jumbo carnations, and really, who cares if his feelings are hurt? I mean, he's, he's a real crappy designer, isn't he? Look at these costumes. Whatever the case, this works, and uh, Quentin leaves them be. He says Phoebe's dress is a little too Nurse Ratchet. Uh, I'm guessing from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I've never seen. I'm sure that's a surprise to everybody listening. And I suppose I could just say we've all got our fetishes or anti-fetishes, so whatever. Next up, we join Wildchild, who has just gotten a glimpse of his ex-lover, Aurora. Now this, if you're not aware, goes all the way back to some early 90s Alpha Flight, which... Tell you what, I'm kind of surprised would ever get a reference in a current year book because that's a kind of a deep cut. Now, at the time, in the early 90s, Wild Child was far less feral and not quite as scary looking. He was more of a, uh, a normal, you know, handsome uh, 1990s hero of sorts. Now, he approaches Aurora in an attempt to reconnect, but she resists. Nothing personal, 
right? Uh, she just claims that back when they were together, she wasn't in a good place, and she would really prefer not to revisit that. She doesn't want to remember that part of her life so much. Nothing personal against Kyle. It's more, it's, it's one of those, it's not you, it's me sort of things. From here, info page. Now, the Stepford Cuckoos tell the story of Aurora and Wildchild's weird romance, which I would imagine would be very helpful for those unfamiliar with those old Alpha Flight issues, which I'd guess would be most people. This is a pretty deep cut. Um, great use of an info page here. Really, really good stuff. We jump back to comics, and it looks like Havoc is trying to, uh, I don't know, work out a deal with a pimp. Oh, wait, that, that wait, that's Magneto? Oh, come the F on. There's no way Magneto would be seen in public wearing a flamboyant pimp outfit. Okay. Anyway, Alex is once again appealing for Madeline Pryor's resurrection. Magneto blows him off just as Polaris wanders over. Magneto fills her in on the Maddie chat, assuming that Alex just wants his ex-lover back. Now, Alex denies this. Claims it's more about him really wanting some clarity on the situation, which... Huh. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Anyway, Lorna drags Alex away to get a drink. Speaking of drinks, back to the bar where Grey Crow and Conan are talking about... <sighs> okay. Three guesses as to what or who Conan might be talking about. Anybody? Anybody? Um, well, if uh, you guessed Betsy Braddock, well, then you've probably been reading X-Men comics long enough to be just as sick of the Betsy Quanan thing as I am. Now, uh, Quanan reflects on having that masterminded dream over the past few issues where she killed Betsy every single day for 30 years, which evidently got a lot of anger out of her system. So, uh, can we maybe never ever mention it again? Or at least take a few issues off? Maybe? Maybe? I don't know. From here, Wildchild busts in demanding a drink. Off to the side, Mr. Sinister offers Franklin Richards some help with his problem, which is pretty cute and totally something Sinister ought to be doing. He then gets into a contentious conversation with fellow Quiet Council member Exodus. Now the chat is interrupted by Nanny getting rip-roaringly drunk through a hole in her egg suit. Back at the bar, John tries to get Kyle to settle his tea kettle a little bit here, uh, you know, trying to be a wild child's keeper of sorts. And Quinan mentions that uh, John's a pretty good friend, and uh, John's like, well, I don't got many of them, so I gotta do what I can for those I've got. Off to another side, Orphan Maker looks to be completely smashed. He's not, because throughout this issue, he'd been begging Empath for a taste of his champagne or whatever he's drinking, but fearing Nanny's wrath, Empath wouldn't give him any. Instead, he just makes Call Me Pete feel a bit tipsy via the use of his empathic powers, which... I mean, I don't know if that's any better or worse than just letting them have a sip of uh, whatever uh, whatever alcoholic beverage you're uh, imbibing in. Next, we go back to Alex and Lorna. Now, Lorna says it's sweet that Alex still cares for Maddie, but tells him that uh, he should trust the, uh, the process of the Quiet Council, trust their decision-making. Uh, then, the thinking-he's-drunk orphan-maker jumps onto Alex's back and talks a lot about how he loves bananas. And hey, you know... Um, we don't kink shame on this show, uh, unless it's about airbags or quicksand, so bananas are perfectly fine. Havoc buries his head in his hand, embarrassed that Lorna is seeing him with the rest of his irregular Hellions uh, partners. And he mentions, you know, Lorna says, trust the Quiet Council, right? Which 
seems like something that a lot of the um, better connected Krakoans might say, those who are not in bad positions, those who are aesthetically pleasing, those who are uh, the top of the, you know, the upper crust of Krakoa. We've talked a little bit about this during our New Mutants conversations here, that it looks like there's a bit of a class system here, right? So Alex, he's saying, you tell me to trust the council, but how can I trust a group of people who decided to put me with the Hellions, right? Havoc and Wild Child, Havoc and Orphan Maker, Havoc and Nanny, Havoc and Grey Crow, I mean, Havoc and anybody on this team, it, it does seem weird, right? Uh, it would stand to reason that Alex would be like, why would you put me with these loonies? There has to be a reason for this, and how can I trust the people who aren't telling me the reasons for this? From here, we jump over to Sinister. Now, he's watching Nightcrawler drunkenly pour all over Nanny's drunken shell. Now, he's babbling about his new Way of X culture, which, uh, yeah, I can't wait to read more about in the Way of X chapter. Next, Kyle decides that he is going to confront Aurora. Unfortunately for him, he pops over right as she's making out with Dakin, Dakin, and so Wildchild immediately wants to fight. Dakin, Dakin, he ain't having it at all. He's not looking for a fight. He's uh, He just wants to spend some time with his girl. Now, the rest of the Hellions manage to wrangle Wildchild down. Uh, Orphan Maker dives in, still talking about bananas. Now, before we know it, it's a full-blown Hellions brouhaha. Nanny is rumbling a little bit, and she also attempts <laughs> to shiv Mr. Sinister with a broken bottle, which... Oh, come on, that's great. That is great. Uh, Empath is then briefly reunited with some of his former Frost Hellion teammates. Uh, Orphan Maker, Quanon, Grey Crow all try to hold Wild Child down, and at this point, Pimp Nito intervenes and uh, gives the Irregulars the boot. From here, we get an info page, and it's more cuckoo chatter. It's basically a recitation of the events of the past few pages. A much less good use of an info page, if I'm being honest. We go back to comics, and the Hellions, minus Sinister and Havoc, they're returning to their Krakoan base via a gateway. The uh, coffee pooper, I think it's, is it Fauna or Flora, or whichever one that is that poops coffee, he pops his head in to let the team know that the fireworks are about to begin, and so they look at the sky. Now, we see nothing, though we can probably assume that they see something. Psychic fireworks, perhaps? Uh, I mean, they're on Krakoa. The gala is on Mykonos. So, I mean, they're not in the same place. So I'm assuming that there's some sort of frosty uh, telepathy at play here. We wrap up this issue with the Hellions confronted by Mr. Sinister, with a huge scar going across his forehead. Huh. Hmm. Well... Of course, we've read the solicits, which kind of spoiled this reveal. But, uh, I guess we could play along, but, uh, I mean, we already know. We already know what this is. We gotta assume that this is the Sinister who we thought died during X of Tens while gathering the DNA from Tarn the Uncaring in the gang. The Locust Vile, I think they were called. We did see Sinister get, like, basically slashed to ribbons here. And so we see him stitched together. We gotta assume it's the same guy. But that is where we leave it. Now, next episode, uh, yeah, it won't be for a little bit, because we got to wait for the DCBS June order to arrive. But then, it's Excalibur. So we come back after the long wait, and it's going to be Excalibur Day. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, also, we will take a look at the Marvel solicits for August of 2021 next time out. 
But for now, let's talk about this issue of Hellions. Well, it'll probably come as no surprise that uh, this is my favorite chapter of uh, the Hellfire Gala at this point. We still have a couple of chapters that I'm looking forward to. I am looking forward to Way of X, of course, and uh, also seeing how X Factor wraps up. That'll be uh, those will be fun issues, I think. Um, but this one was this one was really good. This uh, brought me right back to our little um, the Hellions two-parter from X of Swords, X of Tens, you know. Um, Kind of on trend for like what the story's about But kind of in its own world too So yes, we get a lot of gala stuff I mean, they're at the gala We see a lot of stupid costumes We see a lot of weird conversations But it's all in service of of this wonderful series Everything here Everything here is like a value-added measure And it's just so, so good Um, So where do we even begin? Um... Let's start with some theories about uh, Inferno. Okay, Inferno, we are still kind of... We have an idea where it's headed, of course, right? Um, By now, I think uh, the cover for the first issue and all, like, 75,000 variants of that cover have been shared online and spoiled for a lot of people. So we kind of know what the gimmick's going to be here. It's very likely going to be Mystique and Mora-focused here. But I don't think that's going to be the end of it. Because, uh, you know, we've got the Quiet Council here who won't bring back certain characters. Destiny, of course, is the biggie, right? Destiny will not be brought back for reasons that we know and the people in the know know, but uh, the wider Krakoan populace doesn't. We also have someone who won't be brought back in Madeline Pryor. So... Well, Madeline Pryor goes right back to the original Inferno. So if the Council won't bring back these characters, maybe Mr. Sinister will. I mean, it would tie neatly into the original Inferno in as far as the Sinister and Maddie involvement. And it would also play into the current year Mystique situation. Now, Sinister, if we go way back to Hoxpox, he knew from the start that he was basically being played or used by Xavier and Magneto. And to this point, he's been playing along. I mean, he has his own designs, of course. He has his own secrets that he's keeping, of course. Just even tying back to the X of Swords event, where he was getting DNA, secretly collecting DNA, from uh, folks who are basically off the grid as far as Cerebro and Krakoa are concerned here. So he definitely has his own plans here. He definitely has his own designs and secrets, and he also... As we found out uh, last issue of Hellions, he's got his own black market clone ranch to go along with his regular Bar Sinister black market clone farm. I mean, he can basically do what Cerebro's doing. So I do wonder if uh, Sinister and Madeline are going to play into this Inferno thing, which on one hand makes me very, very happy because I think that's a very interesting story to play with. On the other hand, um, this might just be me, but I think that that kind of spells the end of this series. Like, this series will all have been in service uh, of setting up the Inferno event, or setting up aspects of the Inferno event. Which, I mean, if we go back to the original um, mission statement of the Hickman era, it was that, and I don't remember where I read this, but I've read it several places. I don't know if this is like a game of telephone or if this is actual legit information, but before the initial sales figures came in for the Dawn of X books and before the COVID hiatus, 
the original plan was for shorter ongoings. You know, I mean, this is Marvel, so I mean, <laughs> that's kind of just the way they do comics these days. But I remember reading that each of the flagship series were only going to go about ten to twelve issues. Then they were going to be replaced by another slew of uh, of series that would also go a short period of time. None of these were supposed to be uh, series that were going to cover the entire run, basically. So, Hellions being a second-wave book, a second-wave Dawn of X book, it could stand to reason that this was all put in place to serve this Inferno story. We know Inferno's been in the works for a long time. Inferno got a mention during a very early Sinister Secrets. So, I mean, since day one almost, Inferno has been on the horizon, so... I'm guessing that Hellions was always supposed to be in service of the Inferno event. Which, I mean, if it can fulfill its uh, its mission statement, that's fantastic. Though, uh, and I mean, I'm I'm wildly speculating here. If, uh, if this book does go away, I will very, very, very much miss it. But at this point, if the uh, theories I just floated play out in any sort of way, I... Don't believe that Hellions will make it through Inferno. Now, sticking with Maddie for a bit here, we do get Havoc going to, you know, two of the the biggest movers and shakers on the island to ask about her resurrection. And I like the way that they play this off. Because, I mean, you look at Havoc, and it's easy to write him off as being unstable and also lovelorn, right? They can excuse the questions. They can dismiss his questions as being fueled by emotion rather than logic. So Xavier can be like, "Yeah, dude, you're just you're just hurting. You just want your ex old lady back, right?" Magneto can basically say the same thing. You just you know you miss your girlfriend here. You want her back, which is great because it like purposefully ignores the root of Havoc's concern and his question here. And when Lorna drags him away. And she even tries to, like, lampshade it and kind of uh, prop him up a little bit by just suggesting that it's it's really nice of him to want Madeline brought back. And he you know, he stops and he thinks, and he's like, it, that's not even really it. I, I just want an answer. I want to know about the process. I want to understand the train of thought. I like that a lot because it's not something that is immediately evident. Because, I mean, even us reading it, we just saw him bang a uh, robot version of Madeline Pryor. We saw him in his bondage gear. We saw him in, uh, basically, as, like, a lovesick, submissive lover. So even us looking in, we see it as being more uh, emotional or, or carnal, I suppose. But he kind of pumps the brakes on that. And he's like, no, I, I just want to know the reasons. I want to know what's what. And Lorna's reply that, you know, hey, the Quiet Council makes their decisions and we should just trust them to do so. Another really, really good bit here because it just makes Havoc realize, how can I trust these people who have put me in this group? We don't know why he's there yet, right? We've, we've got a few theories. Maybe he's in there as a mole. Maybe he's in there with some sort of uh, subconscious suggestion where he's going to be the Quiet Council's eyes and ears, maybe keeping an eye on Sinister. It's We don't know. We don't know. We also don't know if Havoc has any sort of darkness in him. We did see him kind of flip out in the first issue of this series where he almost killed a human. So, I mean, that's dicey, of course, especially with the Krakoan commandments. But at the end of the day, 
If we were to slide Havoc into the X-Force book and he did the same thing, he'd be getting a commendation rather than uh, being paired with the rest of the uh, former villains and irregulars in the Hellions. So he wonders how he can trust the Council, and he certainly doesn't trust the Council in as far as not bringing Madeline Pryor back. It's all very subtly done. Really, really good stuff here. What else we got? Um, we got Wild Child and Aurora, which, I mean, basically, not a whole lot to talk about there. It's We saw what we saw. I love that it's a callback to a uh, not-often-mentioned uh, run of comics. Those uh, early 90s Alpha Flights, they're certainly, <laughs> they're certainly not the greatest. Uh, and I would assume a lot of folks who, are, even even folks who are familiar with Alpha Flight, uh, probably don't know a whole heck of a lot about that era. Uh, you talk to folks about Alpha Flight, it's usually the burn stuff, right? That's usually what we all kind of know inside and out. We might know some of the early Jim Lee stuff, even though those stories were a little body horrorific and weird. But, uh... For the post 1990s stuff, uh, outside of issue 106, of course, you don't really get too many callbacks to that. So that was really, really cool to see here. I like that uh, Dakin Dakin is showing some maturity and not really wanting to throw down, uh, where Wild Child is just, uh, he's got that alpha beta in him, right? He, he wants to be the big dog, as we saw during his mastermind uh, illusions, but he's not. But he still feels like he has to prove that he is It's really good stuff Nice progression on him there And again, using established lore to do so It's really wonderful A very, very traditional uh, X-Men storytelling In this very untraditional uh, era and book So very, very well done But I think that's pretty much all I have to say about the story here Um, The art here was really good Nightcrawler looked a little weird I wasn't immediately sure it was Nightcrawler until, you know, it was clear that it was Nightcrawler. Also, I mean, Magneto in the pimp outfit. Why? I, I, I guess I just don't understand fashion. I look at these costumes for the most part, and uh, well, I just kind of cringe. And uh, thinking that Magneto would put on that kind of a costume is just... Uh, Maybe that's why he's going to go on trial. Maybe he is a uh, maybe he is breaking laws of fashion. I, I maybe he kills Jumbo Carnation for making him look like a damn idiot. I I don't know. We'll see when we get there. But uh, that's all I got to say about this wonderful issue of Hellions. But uh, before we cut out of here, we do have some mailbagging to do. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Marauders number nineteen. He says, I've exhausted Marvel Unlimited, so I'm back to in the future listening to episodes about comics that I actually bought. I'm really not enjoying the Madripoor storyline in Marauders. I want to see them swashbuckling around the oceans, not constantly on one island. Amen. Amen. You know, when, uh, when Marauders was launched, and I was kind of on the fence about even buying it in the first place until my X-Men completionism kicked in and it was like, okay, yeah, it's an X-Book, I gotta get it. So when I did, I was immediately brought in with the idea that this was going to be a more globetrotting sort of a sort of series, where we were going to get stories all around the globe, right? We were going to get stories in every every little island, every little country, every big country, just uh, all over the world. This was going to be like the international book where we're going to rescue refugees, broker some uh, black market deals, we're going to build the melting pot of Krakoa. I thought it was just going to be really fun. And then 
here we are, two years into the run, and it's all Madripoor. It's uh, underwhelming. And, I mean, we've we've posited theories about why it's Madripoor, thinking that maybe this is just a safe place to be because no one else in Marvel had claimed it yet, and maybe Hickman's like, yeah, do whatever you want on Madripoor, I don't have any kind of designs on it. I don't know. It is disappointing, though, because I feel like we're leaving a lot of money on the table. We're selling the premise of Marauders short by... You know, it's not even about, like, the high seas, right? It's not even about the boat, really. It's just, like, they're on Krakoa or they're on Madripoor. Uh, with very, very little otherwise. It's uh, Unless they're guest-starring in another book, where we'll just see them, like, bobbing on the surf, you know? Who knows? Now, uh, Damien continues. The most interesting part of this story was the choice of the Morlocks and your fake-ass comics history on Bliss. I was there for that original Morlock storyline with Gene's tentacles and the rotating artists, but I was not familiar with any of the other appearances. Well, thank you, thank you. I, I had fun doing the the Bliss research there. Uh, for folks who might not have listened to that episode or who haven't heard anything with uh, with a fake ass comics history segment in it, I just take a look at some of the lesser known characters when uh, they pop up in the books to give a little bit of a bio, a little bit of an introduction to them, and also uh, kind of jog my own memory. And well, actually, in the case of Bliss, educating me entirely on a character's maybe short, tiny backstory. Um, Bliss was a Morlock, of course, uh, with Mask, and I know I've read the issues where she first appeared, I just couldn't remember them for the life of me, and I actually wouldn't have even known that this was the same character until really stopping to think about it. Uh, Damien continues, Claremont seemed to like the body horror and alien references, see also the brood, so you can see where he got Bliss from, but I'm amazed that anyone thought to bring her back. Having said that, isn't it interesting that the group of Morlocks who were selected were mainly from the era where Mask was the leader of the Morlocks? That must be leading somewhere. It could be. It very well could be. Unless they just saw them as, uh, you know, these are the people who would follow Mask. You know, and uh, we have Mask in the story and we do need to have some folks with him. So they just did a little bit of their due diligence and decided to, you know, put them back together. I don't know that... Mask has any sort of designs on usurping any sort of power. He seems kind of content, right? He seems kind of happy to be the uh, the miracle surgeon at the uh, the Mora McTaggart General on uh, on Madripoor, and also being kind of the leader of the Rio Verde sect of Morlocks. So I, I, I wonder. I wonder. Uh, Damien continues. As for your discussion of Sabretooth's fate and the Morlocks' knowledge of it, I'm not surprised that the Morlocks know where Sabretooth is at all times. He's pretty much their arch-enemy. Don't forget the two Liefeld guys you mentioned first appeared in a Sabretooth story. Now, that's a reference to people knowing that uh, Sabretooth is in the hole. I question whether or not people would know about that. Even people on Krakoa would know about you know, the Krakoan Phantom Zone of sorts. And I still I still have trouble reconciling that in my head, that they would know about that and they'd be okay with it. It's, uh, you know, I hate using the term slippery slope because I feel like it's like kind of a go-to for us uh, fake-ass intellectual types, but Sabretooth, arch-enemy arch or not, you see him in the Phantom Zone, and you might be satisfied with that as an enemy of his and as someone who fears him or has a, a, you know, a contentious history with him. That might give you a bit of satisfaction or a feeling of justice. But 
the rules of Krakoa are so nebulous and so um, on a case-by-case basis that you might worry about uh, being in those shoes yourself, right? What happens if uh, what happens if you don't have friends in the right places and you do something wrong, and suddenly you're uh, you know you're Joseph K from the trial uh, from uh, Kafka, you know you're just arrested and put into stasis and I don't know. I, I feel like if the uh, the Krakoan Phantom Zone was widely known, there would be a bit of an uprising. There would be some sort of a uh, confrontation or a boiling point. I, I think it was in the the Black Cat two-parter we looked at where she mentioned something about the Krakoan hole, and it was just like, how does someone who doesn't even live on Krakoa know about it? It seems... I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing that it's probably editorial oversight or just maybe not thinking too hard about it. Uh, like I mentioned, I spend way too many hours with each of these books every single day, so it's uh, likely that this is a Chris problem or an X-lapsed problem where I'm just... Uh, Kind of mulling over and nitpicking uh, some details that perhaps I ought not because it's only spoiling the fun. Anyway, Damien continues. I also don't understand why being in a sewer made Kitty sick. She spent a lot of times in sewers and old stories and seemed perfectly at home. Yes, she was sick when she first visited the Morlocks, but that was due to plague or pestilence rather than disgust. Also, she surely phased through any microbes. I mean, I think the entire X-Men lived with the Morlocks after leaving San Francisco when Freedom Force first appeared. Are they trying to convince us that Madripoor has worse sewers than New York? It seems unlikely. Well, the sewers of Madripoor are lawless. The toilets of Madripoor are lawless. So maybe maybe the lawlessness has something to do with it. Who knows? Uh, Damien continues, By the way, I like to imagine that the fire and ice sculpture was a series of tableau from the romance novels Pyro used to write back in the 1980s. Is there any consensus on who they were dragging with the fire and ice stuff? I'm choosing to believe that it's aimed at George R.R. R. Martin and not the Giffen and DiMatteis. I'd almost forgotten about the fire and ice sculpture here. Uh, this was the distraction tactic uh, that the Marauder pulled to get the uh, UN boats to not notice that Kitty was diving into the drink. And I mentioned that it was weird that we didn't get to see what the sculptures were um, and uh, automatically assumed that it was something pornographic because why else wouldn't we see it? Gotta assume that could have been a very fun page for, uh, I think it was Matteo Lali to draw and for us to, uh, to look at. I guess that's just another item for our uh, X-Men Unsolved Mysteries uh, Usenet posts. So we'll, uh, maybe one of these days we'll find out, but probably not. I'd like to thank you so much for writing in on that, Damien, and for uh, for time traveling to to keep up with this show. It really, really means a lot. Uh, next, we've got a letter from Jesse regarding the Hellfire Gala, and it reads, "Good afternoon, Chris. Please wake me when the gala's over." <laughs> and that's it. I will uh, I will do my best to remember to uh, to wake you up once the gala is over. The I believe we still have. Nine parts? It was twelve total, right? And I'm guessing that the Children of the Atom issue will be tangentially related to the gala. At least we're probably going to mention of it. So, yeah, I guess we got like ten parts left of the Hellfire Gala. So, uh, yeah, I will remember to wake you when it's over here. But joking aside, I am very much looking forward to this being in the rear view. In part because I'm over it. In part because all of the the big bits of it have already been spoiled hundreds of times online. I tell you, it's hard to keep up with correspondence to uh, to other shows and other uh, people in the X Men fan community when 
I have to kind of hold my hand over my phone screen so I don't see spoilers. I, I don't know what people are talking about, so I'm kind of out of the loop there. And yet, I've still been spoiled on basically everything that's going to come out of this. So, anyway, that's <laughs> all for the mailbag today. As this is the June finale, we're going to take a look at some sales charts here. Now, these are coming to us from our friends at Comicron, of course, and they're for March 2021. As with the past several, we do not have shipped numbers. All we have is the rankings. So we know that a book is number one, but we don't know how many books number one shipped slash sold. So to get us into the gestalt of what was hot in March 2021, let's go through the top five here. Uh, None of them are X-Men books, of course. Now, number one is Berserker. The uh, Keanu Reeves book, which is really no surprise That came from Boom Uh, It's the first issue uh, Had uh, Boy, that was just everywhere Um, Everywhere except for my house I did not buy it So uh, that is number one Number two, Alien number one from Marvel Three, Joker number one from DC Four, Amazing Spider-Man number 62 Of course, from Marvel And finally, number five is Batman 106 from DC So... We love our number ones. We love it when celebrities slum in comics. We love our uh, licensed comics. It's a, it's a different world from where I grew up in. Very, very strange. Oh, except for the number one thing. We always we always loved ourselves on some number ones. Now, let's get into the X-Books proper here. And we're going to start with one that uh, we didn't cover and won't cover on this show. But for completionist's sake, I'm going to include it. This was Demon Days, number one. Uh, this was the 10th best-selling book of the month. And that goes to show that uh, with any sort of marketing push, Marvel can sell or at least ship anything. And despite the fact that I think this is up to its third or fourth printing now, you could go to any comic store in this nation and probably buy about 50 first prints of this very issue because, boy, I mean... If comic shops were to stack their unsold copies of this in one part of their store, it would probably break the foundation. Uh, This is one of the most forced things that I've seen Marvel do in a very long time. Uh, Probably not since Secret Empire. (laughs) I have not seen anything quite this forced. Demon Days, you could buy oodles of them. And uh, I would would guess that in a few months you'll be able to get them for a dollar or less apiece. So if you have any tangential interest... I guess you can get it on Unlimited, or you can wait a month or two until they're, you know, they show up in the quarter bins. Now, for books we actually do cover, everything went down. Okay, every single X book dropped. So, the fifteenth best-selling book of the month was X Men number nineteen. Now, this drops down seven slots from eight. It was the eighth highest-selling book in uh, the February charts. Number twenty-two, Children of the Atom number one, which had a healthy. Bit of marketing behind it and a lot of curiosity So I don't know if that's a good number If that's a shockingly high number or a shockingly low number Considering all the oomph that went into it I mean, 22 is nothing really to scoff at But at the same time For the amount of push that this got That's a little disappointing And again, we don't have shipped numbers here So number 22 might have sold a million copies Of course it didn't But I mean, for all we know It could have sold five copies It could have sold a million Anywhere in the middle uh, book 35, X-Force number 18, which dropped down three slots from position 32. Number 40, a book we don't cover here, but did drop, X-Men Legends number 2. Uh, not a bad drop. It went down 29 slots from number 11. 
Of course, the first issue had a lot of press behind it, a lot of curiosity, so X-Men Legends number one being the 11th highest-selling book. Well, that might put Children of the Atom being number 22 in a perspective a little bit, but a healthy a healthy drop from uh, from 11 to 40, but not at all unexpected. What was kind of unexpected was our 61st best-selling book, Sword Number 4, A King in Black tie-in. This dropped down 14 slots from position 47 in uh, February. Figured that the King in Black stuff would get a, a bump. Uh, looks like Sword did not. This kind of goes against the uh, conventional wisdom of uh, including new series in your crossover event because my thought was that, hey, we're going to we introduce Sword. We have one issue, right? Sword number one. Then two, three, and four are all King in Black. Tie-ins, so we don't even get to establish the premise so much, and we're already being swept into a non-X-Men event. This X-Men book is in a wide Marvel Universe event here. We figured this would be like a, you know, the tide rises all boats sort of thing. No, not really. Not really for S.W.O.R.D. It goes down a considerable amount. Now, our 67th highest selling book was Hellions number 10, which is unfortunate. Uh, Dropped down 11 slots from position 56. The 75th best-selling book, Excalibur 19, dropped 22 slots from position number 53, and somehow it's still not canceled. That's... <laughs> I don't know what it is about Excalibur that they won't just, you know, stick a fork in it. That takes us to the two books that were canceled here. The 85th highest-selling book was X-Factor number 8, which dropped down 28 slots from position 57. Part of me wonders if the uh, if the cancellation cat had already been let out of the bag at this point, because once that happens, you know, th- these books kind of just die on the vine. Finally, 89 is cable number 9, and that is down 14 more slots from position 75. It's worth noting here, while those are the lower-selling X-Men books here, they are still outselling quite a few books here. Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, that's a pretty high-profile book, right? Well, even Cable Number 9 outsold that. Star Wars Doctor Aphra, where, I mean, you couldn't open a Marvel comic without ads for that thing being thrown in your face for months. Well, Cable Number 9 outsold that, too. Conan the Barbarian, another book with a sizable push. Cable's outselling that. Champions, another one that gets kind of a push. And finally, Black Panther. Which shocked the hell out of me I thought Black Panther would be at least a B-level Marvel book In insofar as sales But no, no, it's way, way down Speaking of way, way down And simply for completionist's sake We do have two more books to list here uh, We don't have anything to compare them to Because they're just our off-the-beaten-path books The 155th best-selling book of the month Was Power Pack Number 4 and honestly, I'm surprised it's that high, considering how few people gave a rat's ass about it. Uh, that was a that was an episode that I <laughs> I don't ever regret doing episodes. But when I did Power Pack, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed recording it. I enjoyed everything about it until it got to the point where I had to promote it. And I hate promoting my shows as it is because I'm very very bad at it. And I know that most people really don't care about what anything that I do. But Power Pack was especially just like nobody cared at all, which is unfortunate because it was a fun story 
It was a fun book. It was a fun read. It was just, it was fun. But uh, nobody cared. Nobody cared at all. And I guess nobody cared to buy the thing either. Finally, our 205th best-selling book, Runaways number 34, which is a surprise because Runaways 34 had Wolverine on the cover. Hell, you know, Power Pack number 4 had Wolverine on the cover. I guess slapping Wolverine on covers just doesn't do what it used to do. Then again, you know, these are shipped uh, numbers that we're gauging here, I suppose. So for all we know, they didn't even have pictures of the cover when they when comic shops made their orders. And it's like, oh, it's Runaways, it's Power Pack, ain't nobody going to buy none of that, so let's order very, very few. But that will do it for our uh, look into the sales charts for March 2021 here. I'm... Curious to see how uh, the the Hellfire Gala helps to raise numbers. I would assume it's going to raise numbers because I doubt this downward trend will uh, will continue that much longer before before things start happening. I don't think I've ever seen a month where every single X book has started has slid down the charts. And again, we don't have ship numbers, so they might be shipping the same amount. It might just be that other books are shipping more. It's really an unfair comparison or analysis for me to give, but with the information we have, this is all I can do. But that will do it for the sales charts, that'll do it for the episode, and that'll do it for this run of Original Recipe X-Lapsed episodes until the uh, next DCBS package arrives, which can be as early as the first week of the month, or it could be as late as the third week of the month. <laughs> you just never, ever know. But... In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so very, very easily. I'm a very lonely person, and I like to talk. So you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can give me a call at 623-396-JERK. That is the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline thingamabob. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. The group is 90sXmen. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And while you're there, if you like what you hear or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, maybe even leave a, leave a nice review for me. I would really, really appreciate it. It would really help the show. But with all that said, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. I would like to thank you so much for allowing me to spend a little bit of time with you. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.